0: Okay, thank you for coming, everybody. I'm Richard, I'm the course director of this week's module. And as part of the week, we've organised a seminar. I'm delighted to introduce Dr Martin Sene, deputy chief executive of the National Physics Laboratory. And I think his talk will make clear why I was so keen that somebody from a physics laboratory should come and talk on a medical science programme. Thanks. Okay, great. So, yes, thanks for the introduction. Um, What I'm going to try and do, in uh, the, uh, the next three quarters of an hour or so, is three things. One, I want to give you some idea about why having trusted measurements is quite so important. The second thing is I want to tell you about how it is, what what exists globally to ensure that we can all have confidence in the measurements that we make or the measurements that get made on our behalf. And the third thing I want to do is to explain to you why 2019 is possibly the most exciting year in the science of measurement for at least 140 years and potentially is the culmination of a project that started in 1791 during the French Revolution. So measurement is something that, um, we probably all take for granted it. it's something that has been part of human society for at least 5,000 years. Almost certainly, what happened was that as soon as humans started to interact outside their family groups or their very local groups, they realized they needed to have some means of exchange for two reasons. Firstly, for trade. And this is some of the earliest archaeological evidence uh, for measurement. These are chert weights, they come from the Indus Valley, somewhere between two and a half thousand and three thousand BCE. And they are an illustration of people's obsession with ensuring, they're very accurate obsession with ensuring that trade was fair, that you got what you paid for. The second thing that people probably needed to do. Uh, have measurements for very early on was construction, building projects again as soon as those projects went outside of the local family group. This is probably the most obvious example of that. The pyramids are a remarkable feat of, uh, of construction um, and the way that it worked was the work was distributed by a very, through a very large number of groups of masons. Each of those masons had a wooden standard which was a copy of one of these, this is, a cop- this is a reproduction of the Egyptian cubit. It was the distance between here and the fingertips of the pharaoh. I will pass this around to see if I don't, I don't match up to a pharaoh, so, uh, <laughs> but if you want to pass this around, you can see if you match up to a pharaoh. And in order to ensure, in order to ensure that these, uh, in order to ensure that this consistent measurement was used and was being maintained, Every full moon, the heads of the different mason yards had to return and compare their standard to the master qubit. Failure to do so was punishable by death. They took consistent measurement pretty seriously. In in the UK, one of the first places that you have real documented Uh, evidence of how important measurement is, is this document, Magna Carta 1215. In the English-speaking world it's looked back to as one of the documents that are the roots of the freedoms that we have. So in here comes the first habeas corpus, in here comes the real requirement of people to be trialled by their peers, a whole host of freedoms, but about two-thirds of the way down, somewhere down here, are these words. I I realised that just as important as other things, having consistent measurement and having confidence in the measurements that's being made was important for the functioning of a society. And I also like, uh, I also think it's interesting that the priorities are wine, (laughs) ale and corn (laughs) and some things don't change. Today, measurement is part of everyday life. There's lots of pictures up here where we come across measurement and probably take it for granted. Sometimes we wish it wasn't quite as accurate as it could be on the scales. Um, Does anybody know who the lady in the top is? Top of the middle. There, anybody know that lady? Um, Ellie Simmons, Simmons, absolutely right. That's Ellie Simmons. Uh, And in 2016, uh, she, in the Paralympics, she got a world record for the 200 metre IM6 swimming. And that was... 2 minutes 59.81 seconds. Now, for her and for her competitors and the predecessors and the successors in Olympics, it is important that it really was 2.59.81 and 2 minutes 59.81 seconds so that a world record at 2 minutes 59.80 will be absolutely com- confidently. Uh, achieved if that happens in the next time we have these olympics so those are examples where it's pretty obvious that we are involved in a measurement and we're taking a measurement and it's and we can see how important it is to our lives and lives of individuals uh, and and so on but most of the time the measurements that are going on around us in our developed society are probably completely hidden There's an enormous iceberg of measurements on which we all depend every single day. 3,600 billion cubic metres of gas is traded annually. It was 2017, that was the figure. 3,600 billion cubic metres of gas was traded across the world in 2017. It's traded not on volume, it's traded on calorific value, which is a combination of... Accurate measurement of volume and accurate measurement of the constituents of the gas. And over the last 25 or 30 years, there have been an enormous amount of very detailed, very complex, very technical, very scientific uh, research done to help have the standards so you can do calorific value with all the different constituents of gas from across the world at the accuracy you need for trade so that it's completely transparent to us. (laughs) Similarly, building construction this is a Rolls-Royce Trent 1000 engine it has 18,000 components the 18,000 components come from across the world when they arrive either at Derby in the UK or Singapore where they have uh, they have assembly plants these and all those different parts have to fit they have to be the right size they have to be the right shape they have to have the right materials properties they have have the right electrical properties and that doesn't happen by accident it is amazing And something that we take for granted that global manufacturing can do this kind of thing across the world the other thing about these engines is that Rolls-Royce no longer sell engines Rolls-Royce sell power by the hour so you buy power from the engine so when the engine is on the amount of power you generate is what Rolls-Royce bill the uh, aircraft companies for literally thousands of measurements a second are being taken from this engine And they are all either downstreamed immediately or more likely downloaded when it lands back to the Rolls-Royce company so that they can do their both billing but all the diagnostics on how the engine is performing. Uh, We take weather forecasting for granted. Uh, Interestingly, although we make a lot of fun of it, the UK Met Office is either number one or number two, whenever there's any assessment is done in the... The most accurate forecasting organisations in the world. The, Rolls Roy- uh, the, the Met Office um, has its headquarters in Exeter, and in Exeter it has two of the largest supercomputers in the company. It has two, just in case one breaks down. And they both run in parallel four times a day a global atmospheric model in order to predict the weather. That global atmospheric model sucks in 125 million measurements every day from across the globe. Those measurements have to be consistent. So, one degree in Sydney, one millibar in Toronto has to be the same mm-hmm. as one degree in Slough, one millibar in Paris. Without that consistency, at quite a high accuracy with confidence, then the global atmospheric model would just turn out gibberish. We all take this for granted. Uh, we all have SatNav in our pocket. F, I bet there's most. Or, uh, no, I'm pretty certain just about everybody has sat-nav in their pocket. Again, something we take for granted that wherever you are in the world you can find out your position to within a few, meet, few tens of metres. That is possible because orbiting the Earth are at least 24 satellites. I think there's 26 at the moment. There has to be at least 24 satellites in the Global Positioning System constellation. Those satellites each have on them an atomic clock, that clock is accurate and synchronised with the others to within a hundred nanoseconds, a hundred billionths of a second of the global, the universal coordinated time for the globe. That is an astonishing feat of measurement on which we all depend when we open up our phones and we take it for granted. This uh, is the the table in a radiotherapy clinic. In the UK, 330,000 people a year are diagnosed with cancer. Approximately half of them will have radiotherapy. Uh, And if you're from a medical background, you'll know better than I. Radiotherapy in concept is very simple. You deliver enough dose to the tumour to kill it without delivering too much dose to the surrounding tissue and compromising the health of the patient. It is the most demanding application for measurement of ionising radiation. You need to be able to measure and deliver in the patient, on the table, in the clinic, every time, ideally to within about 3% of your target dose. That is an astonishingly challenging uh, measurement to have to do. But I can tell you that if you or anybody you know is ever unfortunate enough to lie on a table like this in the UK, the dose in the UK is delivered more accurately and more consistently than anywhere else in the world. And that's the result of about 30 people who work at my institution and their predecessors who have been working with medical physicists, equipment manufacturers, professional bodies to put in place the infrastructure to ensure that people's lives get saved every single day. So... Just a few examples of the fact that beneath the surface of our everyday life, our economy, our quality of life, and in situations like this, our very lives depend on confidence in measurement that either we make or, more often than not, is made on our behalf. So, how is that confidence assured? Well, uh, in 1791, the French Revolution was just underway starting 1789 in 1789 there were it was the start of about a hundred years almost a hundred years of turmoil in France Uh, at least two monarchies were deposed one dictator in the middle an incredible amount of of turmoil Uh, and this picture which a famous picture painted by Delacroix in the middle of that to celebrate the uh, uh, the bringing down of Charles X uh, it's called Liberty Leading the People, and uh, in France this is seen as one of the pictures that kind of really summarises and is an icon of that turbulent time of their history. But at the beginning of that, in 1791, these people, a group of people, including these two famous mathematicians, whose names you've probably come across if you've got any mathematical background, wrote a paper to the French Academy of Science, and I will leave you for... 15, 20 seconds to read what they said. Their vision was that you could set up they talked only about uh, length here but they were trying to set up a system of measurement that was for all time and for all people. I suspect that the somewhat uh, turbulent times that went on between then and the 1870 uh, was one of the reasons that starting to really do something about this was delayed. But in 1875, 17 nations signed the, the Meta, the Treaty of the Meter Convention. Uh, This is the UK's copy. Interestingly, the UK didn't sign in 1875 because the UK was very, very suspicious of European projects. (laughs) Uh, We signed in 1879. Uh, And this set up a framework, the International Measurement System, which has continued uh, to evolve since then. When it was set up, uh, they... The French offered some headquarters for this uh, international measurement system, and they offered it very, very generously in Paris. And the international um, community who had signed this said they would contribute to making this, this, uh, this headquarters fit for purpose. So this was the building. That the French offered to the international community. <laughs> uh, it was in a little bit of a, i suspect the international community was a bit shocked about quite how much they had to spend. Uh, this is what it looks like today. It's on the outskirts of Paris. It's at Sevres. Sevres is probably more famous for its porcelain than it is for measurement, but it overlooks the Sevres factory, uh, the Sevres porcelain factory, and it's the Bureau International de Poids and mesure And it's the headquarters of probably. The single largest science and technology cooperative activity on the planet. So, this is how we ensure that there is some confidence in measurements that we make or get made on our behalf. If you want to make a measurement, if you're in business or in government and society and you want to make a measurement in which you can have confidence, there are three or four things that you need. You need to calibrate an instrument. Unless it's trivial, you need an agreed procedure, how are you going to make the measurement? And again, unless it's trivial, you need a trained practitioner uh, about making that measurement. And if it has any regulatory component to it, you need a fourth thing, you probably need some kind of verification or accreditation. There are two fundamental concepts that enable that to happen. The first is called traceability, and that is an unbroken chain of calibration from the measurement that's being made back to... Uh, special institutes in the in in the members of the meter convention uh, National Metrology Institutes, NMIs and in the UK NPL where I work is the National Metrology Institute for the UK and we are top of that chain for most uh, measurements certainly all physical measurements Uh, there is an organisation called LGC who are at the top of the chain for chemistry measurements designated for them and there's an organisation in Scotland who are at the top of the chain for flow measurements but Uh, To a large part, uh, there's one organisation, the NMI, responsible for this. Now, these chains can be quite long. If you take a ruler and you measure the width of an alcove in your house so that you can order a cupboard over the internet and be sure it fits, there's probably half a dozen steps between your ruler and the National Metrology Institute. But if you lay on that table in a radiotherapy clinic, there's nobody between you and MPL. We calibrate directly, we interact directly, partly because there's not much difference between the uncertainty that we can get and the uncertainty they need and partly because it's absolutely life critical. And the thing that sits at the top of the chain are national or primary standards. Mm -hmm. They are realisations, they are artefacts or ways of realising the measurement at a national level or at an international level that uh, are dem- demonstrated to be at the highest un- highest accuracy now how do you- the second concept is called equivalence and that's coordinated by the headquarters of the international measurement system and it's the domain solely of these national metrology institutes it's a complex set of calibrations and checking of quality systems of comparisons to demonstrate that the top of the chain in each of these countries is comparable, equivalent within the uncertainties that they quote. Some countries quote higher uncertainties than others, but the uncertainties have to be able to be demonstrated. The the measurements have to be equivalent within the uncertainties. I said these are complex. These comparisons, because of the checking, because of the importance, because of the complexity, because they're done at the the highest level of measurement, can take years, sometimes a decade. To complete and demonstrate that that is the fact, and so there's constantly a rolling cycle of these measurements across uh, the whole of the system. And above that, there is the General Conference of the Meter Convention, which is the m- the, meet- the conference that happens every four years, and is when all of the member states get together to make significant decisions about the global measurement system. Between the conference, they delegate the running of the global measurement system to the International Committee of Weights and Measures, CIPMs, uh, Committee International de Point Miseur, in French, and that's 18 people who are responsible for operating and overseeing the global measurement system between conferences, and I'm privileged to be one of the people sitting on that committee. Now, if there were no new activities that humans undertook, if there was never any new science and technology, if there were never any new global challenges, this system could be set up and it would run like clockwork and uh, national laboratories would just be engaged in this. And indeed, uh, there's a large percentage of the national laboratories, national metrology institutes in the world who just do this for their nation, particularly in the emerging nations, nothing else. But there are new challenges, there are new activities, Uh, there are new problems, Um, there's new science and technology. So the most advanced national metrology institutes of which MPL is one work with academia and business to future-proof the system, to put in place new science, new technology, uh, to verify data and to have world-leading facilities so that as science and technology and global challenges appear, the measurement system is there ready to assist and at the heart of this whole system is the set of base units the set of units that enable you to have consistent measurement around the world there are seven of those Uh, the number increased slowly over a period of time but since 1971 there have been seven Kilogram, the unit of mass. Meter, the unit of length. Second, the unit of time. Ampere, the unit of current. K, the unit of Kelvin, the unit of temperature. Uh, Mole, the unit of quantity of matter. And candela, about which I will say very little in this, because it's a very, very curious unit uh, that is that solely related to human perception of light. Uh, However, these are the units. And all measurements within the system can be expressed in combinations of those so we're probably all familiar with velocity meters per second energy which has a special name the joule is actually kilogram meter second uh, meters squared second to the minus two resistance the ohm is kilogram meter squared second to the minus three amp to the minus two and for those who are chemists catalytic activity concentration whatever that is catals per cubic meter is this mole per second per cubic meter so, those enable you, that, that framework enables you to have a way of measuring everything. And the SI is incredibly successful. There are 60 member states of the META Convention, there are 42 associate members of the META Convention, and then through regional organisations, the, the different regional uh, organisations you can see on this picture, there are other nations who are aspiring to be part of the META Convention who are engaged at a regional level as well so 98 point something percent of GD- of the global gdp is encompassed by the si system so it is an incredibly successful uh system it's very nearly a purple for all people but it's a bit messy uh, we don't really need all those units. If you, really, if you just wanted to measure anything, if you're a mathematician or a physicist and you were saying, we really don't need all of these, what's the minimum number of units we need? Uh, we don't, there are three of them we really don't need. The candela is how bright the lights appear to humans. That's what it's measuring. It's a unit based on human perception, and it's basically defined at one wavelength of light near the peace sensitivity of the eye, and it's just a conversion factor from a measure, measurement of light intensity Uh, per steradian, to uh, how it appears to the human eye, in terms of how candles appeared in Victorian times. Uh, It's a very strange unit. It's really important for the lighting and the health and safety industry, but it is a strange unit. The mole basically links chemistry to the SI. It's the number of it's a Avogadro number of elementary entities and it's the number of atoms in 12 grams of carbon-12. It basically links what's going on at atomic scale to what's going on at a macroscopic scale. It's incredibly useful uh, and is absolutely embedded in the whole of chemistry and increasingly in biology but in principle <coughs> you don't need it. And finally, Kelvin. Temperature's a fascinating measurement. Temperature was measured before anybody really knew what it was. Because temperature is actually the average energy uh, of molecules, the average molecular energy of the molecules or atoms (laughs) in an object. Uh, And so you you can measure average energy, Uh, but uh, because temperature is something again that you want to have macroscopic, this is a way of linking Uh, a macroscopic measurement down to a microscopic activity the energy of molecules and the scale is set at the moment by one point, the triple point of water uh, which is just defined as 273.16 Kelvin and the whole of the scale bootstraps off of that so it's a bit messy, however it's completely impractical ...to abolish those unnecessary units. They are all embedded. The whole of global manufacture, global trade, uh, science, technology... ...everything has these things so embedded in them... ...that it's impractical to get rid of them. A more serious problem is that some definitions explicitly limit... ...how you can realise a primary standard. Those things that sit at the top of the chain... ...and are the absolutely most accurate way that you can use measurements... ...below which all the other measurements... Come, are flow from them and are less certain. Some definitions limit how you can realise a primary standard, the most accurate measurements. And one definition is an artefact. And I'll tell you why that's a real problem in a moment. But these things, one or both of those, create an absolute limit to reducing the uncertainty of measurement. So that can limit the applications of science and technology and trade. We can find that these limitations on measurement are actually a barrier to science moving forward or technology moving forward or people being able to address global challenges and i'll say a little bit about that more in a moment so uh, the kilogram is the one artifact left and it illustrates both of these things about uh both about the problem with an artifact and the problem of uh, you can only define it in one particular way this is the definition of the kilogram and this is it um this is how big it. you can't get a sense of scale so I brought one, that's not a real kilogram because they're made of platinum iridium so it's a stainless steel blank but it, that's to give you an idea of the size I, uh, and certainly nobody would let me loose with anything that's even close to one of the copies of the copies of the kilogram um, but this is the master kilogram it's, uh, it's held at the headquarters of the International Measurement System in Paris uh, it's in a safe uh, in a vault In the basement of a building and at least once a year there's a very strange ritual where the president of the uh, committee the international committee cipm the director of the laboratory bipm and somebody from the french academy of science bring their three independent keys and they open the, the they open the basement they open the vault and they open the safe and they confirm that the kilogram is being kept Uh, and last year I was at this it's a a very interesting uh, 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 thing, so I saw the kilogram, Uh, sitting in there also are these six uh, which were six copies made very early and they're the ones that get used the kilogram gets used maybe once every ten years because it is the definition of the kilogram, so if it gets scratched we all weigh more that's and the other problem, the problem with artefacts is they're not for all time, so this is an interesting graph. Uh, this is 1889, when the kilogram was created, worth the kilogram, and there were some copies made then. In 1946, a couple of other copies were made, so there are now these official copies, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and they are regularly intercompared. Uh, and so, because the kilogram is the definition of the kilogram, it's always right. So this is how far over a period of time, in 2014 was the last time it was done, you can see. So they've drifted apart by around 60, just over 60 micrograms now. Of course the kilogram has to be right, it's got a kilogram, but... So are these things really for all times? There's a, that's a problem about artefacts, even one that's kept and controlled and looked after in the way that the kilogram is. The second problem is those traceability chains that I talked about. The fact that um, you have to have an unbroken chain of calibration from a primary standard in order for something to have confidence in the measurement. If the only definition of the kilogram is a particular artifact, that chain, every single chain, has to start ultimately with that. And every time you make a comparison, you add uncertainty to your measurement. So even here, where you are comparing the copies to the kilogram, uh, you get an uncertainty of five parts in 10 to the 8, which isn't a problem for mass measurement. But if you want to measure something really small, down here at a milligram, because the traceability chain to get there is so long, you are already at five in ten to the four at one milligram. That is now, hasn't been in the past, that's now starting to get significant for some applications of measurement. Drug companies are making measurements down at micrograms and want to ensure they're traceable and consistent globally. So these are stuff that's just starting to get a problem for the kilogram. So, what's the solution? What's the solution to this problem of having units defined in these strange ways, including one that sits there as an artefact? Well, the solution is to lock all the units to unchanging properties of the universe. What Lagrange and Laplace thought was a good idea in 1791. To lock them to the universe. Not to an artefact, not to a definition. To lock them to the universe. But... Because, as I said earlier, the whole of our lives are dependent on confidence and consistency of measurement. You have to do it without any perceptible step change in any application. That is a massive challenge. You need to select a suitable set of universal concepts that cover all the seven units and measure them with a small enough uncertainty so you use the existing measurement system to measure fundamental constants then you fix the value of the constants and let them define the units. This project which was conceived either in 1791 or in 1875 when the meter convention was signed or really in earnest in 1960 has been absolutely mammoth. It makes finding the Higgs boson like falling off a log It has an absolutely enormous challenge, and it was achieved in 2018 for implementation this year. So, how do you do it? Let me explain how you do this. Uh, And the first step on the journey is 1967, when the second was defined by uh, reference to a particular transition, a microwave transition, in the cesium-133 atom. In in the 1950s, a guy at MPL, Louis Essen, created the atomic clock. We've all got used to that. The atomic clock, instead of using a pendulum or a a vibrating material of some kind, that uses as its pendulum the vibrations or the the, the oscillations of a particular, in this case, microwave transition. So you've got a microwave, and you use that, and you count the number of oscillations of that microwave. So the second... Uh, was defined in 1967 as 9,192,631,770 periods of the microwave emission from the hyperfine transition of the ground state of cesium 133. You probably all knew that, but I just <laughs> reminded you. Um, and so you are locking the second to a property of cesium atoms that is the same everywhere for all time, as far as we know. This was really interesting because there was some argument from the astronomers who wanted it all still locked to the Earth in some way, but they gave in. And this second was defined in 1967. And that unleashed scientific research and applications in the most amazing way. Since then, five Nobel Prizes have in physics have been won by people researching ways in which you can improve this kind of measurement and apply it not only gps is the outcome of this but all of telecoms all of the internet all absolutely relies on the fact that we can make measurements really really quite accurately this picture here is mpl's primary clock so this is our clock this is where we capture and we hold stationary cesium atoms we interrogate them and we lock microwave radiation onto those we lock the frequency of a microwave onto the cesium atom and then we use that to uh, to define our second and we can this clock is accurate to 1 second in 168 million years so that's a reasonably accurate clock So that's the second. The next part of the story came in 1983, when, once you've defined the second, if you can measure the speed of light, which is believed to be a fundamental constant in the universe, you can measure the speed of light accurately, then you can define the metre from reference to how far light travels in a second. So then the metre becomes... Dependent on the cesium frequency and the speed of light c, and so this is it. Speed of light was measured. This is a this rather fuzzy because this is a 1970s picture. Again from NPL, there were experiments like this done in NIST in the U.S. and in various other places all across the world. They all had to agree. The guys who did this tell a story. NIST finished theirs just uh, about a month before these guys finished theirs, and they were so worried about consistency and no chance of conclusion. NIST sent them their results, no internet or anything, NIST sent them their results in a brown paper envelope and they sealed it and put it in the director's office and would not look at it until they had their number. And the numbers agreed, fortunately. Uh, <laughs> so, two nine nine seven nine two four five eight metres per second is the speed of light and so the second was defined like this. The ampere is a really interesting one. The ampere, uh, that is something that's literally only just been, uh, well, only redefined in 2019. The ampere is uh, one over e, the charge on the electron. So again, you need time, which you can get from the cesium, and you need the charge on the electron, Then the ampere is defined as the number of electrons per second. One over e, the charge on the electron, electrons per second. You can't actually measure you can't actually do this yet. This is really interesting. You can't actually measure. You may this year, for the first time, uh, in a couple of labs, including ours, be able to realise this unit by counting the number of electrons per second. But fortunately, there are a couple of Nobel Prizes, 1973 and 1985, that enabled you to have quantum realisations of the volt and the uh, volt and the resistant and the ohm. So you could create situations in which you absolutely knew what the voltage across a junction was from the Josephson junction, or the resistance of a piece of material from the von Klitzing effect, the quantum Hall effect, so you could have... And they were dependent on uh, E and C, upon the speed of light and upon uh, the charge on the electron. So actually, you were able to create... uh, You're not able to measure the ampere by counting electrons, but you can definitely relate it back to the charge on the electron. The biggest challenge by far is this one, replacing IPK, the kilogram. That was the single biggest challenge in the whole of this exercise. And there's two ways that you can do it. Option one is you create an artefact of known mass, uh because if you remember the mole, twelve grams of uh the number of atoms of carbon twelve in twelve grams, uh, so you could see that you could link by counting atoms, you could link back to the kilogram through there, and option one was a recipe for creating artifacts in own mass. Fortunately, the semiconductor industry can create really ultra pure silicon twenty eight not quite pure enough for this experiment so they had to do some even more work on that and then you build a sphere you build a sphere and then you measure its size this these few objects were the most accurately measured objects on the planet uh, just so you get some sense of scale that 's the kind of scale of them i've i 've held a uh, one of the first dummy ones but i 've not held one of the actually they don 't let anybody hold one of these because you can 't get any, anything on the outside at all so you have to know exactly its dimensions you have to understand surface properties and, oxi- and oxidation of the surface it 's an incredibly complicated thing but this was the Avogadro project, and that was one way of measuring. Uh, the the kilogram. The other way of measuring the kilogram was measuring mass in terms of something else, something other than masses. Uh, And this guy here, Brian Kibble, who sadly died uh, in 2016, if he hadn't died he would have been uh, a candidate for the Nobel Prize. Uh, You can't win the Nobel Prize posthumously. Uh, He came up with the mechanism that is that was the most uh, practical way of realising the kilogram. By measuring the gravitational force, so if you can a ab- balance that's got a gravitational force, measuring it in terms of electrical forces. And the electrical forces could be related to fundamental constants C, E, and H. As I said, C and E, speed of light, and the electron charge already defined for the metre and the ampere. So you bootstrap from that, and you just need H. now. You might, Planck's constant. Now I'm just going to try and um, I'm just going to click this if it works. Yes it will. I can't explain very uh, in the time available exactly how the kibble balance works but I can give you a clear idea of how you might think mass and this thing Planck's constant could be related together. This is the most famous physics equation in history. See my only equations in the whole of the talk. So E equals MC squared, where E is the energy of an object at rest, M is the rest mass of the object, and C is the speed of light. I imagine everybody in the rooms seen this equation before. A slightly less famous physics equation, E equals HF. So the energy of a light quantum, a photon, uh, is Planck's constant times the frequency of light. And this constant, Planck's constant, like speed of light, appears to be a fundamental property of the universe. If you combine those two equations, you end up with an equation that looks like this. M equals HF over C squared. So a change in the mass of a particle when it emits a photon at frequency F is that. So you can see how frequency... uh, which is time, speed of light, and h. So if you've already locked frequency to the second and speed of light to the meter, then h is the only com- the constant that gives the whole system, locks it into mass. An interesting thing, this, this equation at the top here, e equals mc squared, was of course uh, Einstein's uh, famous equation. This equation, although it's got Planck's name associated with it, the first time it was ever used by anybody was by Einstein uh, for the photoelectric effect. And that's actually what he got his Nobel Prize for. He didn't get his Nobel Prize for this. He got his Nobel Prize for understanding the photoelectric effect uh, and coming coming up with an equation like that. So, So in order to do that, you have to have this balance, this device that can compare weighing, with incredibly accurate measurements of electrical forces. It is a fiendishly complex experiment. There are people who have spent 40 years, their entire career, doing this experiment. There is a guy, an MPL, who worked with Brian Kibble. This guy's been working 30 years. Brian Kibble was working 10, 15 years before him. It is fiendishly complicated, because you have to do it all to get an uncertainty of one part in 10 to the eight and it's a mechanical and electrical experiment at one part in a hundred million. It is fiendishly complicated. And in 2017, when I sat down at the CIPM, this was the data that we were shown. So I'll try and explain this graph. Uh, This graph are all the experiments that have been done since 1990. There were more before that, but they had bigger error bars. These are all the experiments done since 1990, and these are all measurements of H. So taking that balance measurements or those silicon sphere measurements and Because of the way it works all locking it all back onto we're measuring H Planck's constant These are the measurements from all of that time this scale here there was a uh, there was uh, an assessment of what Planck's constant was in 2014 by the global uh, physical constants group they could go to code codata, and so this scale along here is parts in 10 to the 8 away from the previous definition of 8. So you can see they all cluster. And there was, I can tell you, there was three hours of discussion at the consultative Committee on Units, and then at least half a day of discussion at CIPM about whether we really believed that this was consistent enough to lock, finally lock the last of the units to a fundamental constant. Uh, and this was the number we came out with. That's... Thanks, Constant. Uh, Because this was this was go no go for the whole uh, conference to say yes on to doing this, and uh, it was an interesting discussion. But we did say yes. So we have seven units and seven constants. Uh, The second related to that fundamental uh, that constant of nature. We could have chosen another atom. But with caesium, the metre is related to that cesium property and the speed of light. The ampere, again, to the cesium property and the electron to the electron. The kilogram uh, to the speed of light, the uh, cesium uh, transition and Planck's constant. Uh, the Boltzmann constant is a scaling constant. The Boltzmann constant is the constant that is the scale between temperature and average energy. Uh, and in order to get that constant, there had to be some of the most accurate measurements, well, no, the most accurate measurements of temperature ever done at about uh, 20 labs around the world. Uh, the candela is a technical constant. As I said, that hasn't changed. That's just this relationship between uh, light energy and how we perceive it. And the Avogadro constant, which came out of the silicon sphere and other things, was fixed. So this is seven constants, seven units. This was the end of the project. Uh, And so, from next year, it was agreed last year, from 20th of May 2019, the anniversary of the signing of the original media convention, 20th of May, the SI will be the system of units in which the following constants have exact values. So these are now fixed, these have zero uncertainty, these are exact numbers, and so you infer units of measurement from those, rather than measure these with units of measurement. So, we have a new SI. So there was a historic and a unanimous vote on the 16th of November, 2018. Uh, this was it, in Paris. Uh, I've never known so much press. Uh, I, I guess everybody probably heard about the kilogram finally being pensioned off. Uh, if you work in metrology, you get used to people not knowing what measurement is or how important it is, and it just kind of goes on under the surface. But this was mobbed literally mobbed by the press this conference it was bizarre Uh, but this is a once in a generation uh, moment to future-proof the SI system and to enable and catalyze new science technology and applications because when you can measure things more accurately you get that synergistic relationship between more accurate measurement and people drawing on that to improve technology which in its turn can help you to make more accurate measurements. You get a synergy between the two that has developed and created some of the most astonishing technology we have today. So everybody was very excited about this, uh, and uh, this was a video that was created about how excited everyone was. More than 140 years. Groundbreaking science. And the agreement from the world scientific community. At times, it's sink. impossible. Accurate. Precise measurements. Anytime. Anywhere. We did it. We have fatta! the We have in the ground. We see a body. One more. This the line of the. Brown This is the line of the. This is the line We the. the the Bazato. congratulations! tol. Congratulazione. Chatele Lama. Super test. Parabéns. Omega. Ongheira. 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 Tanguita. Onesolo. Mamelouk. Capai. Anniku. Felicitation. Congratulations. So, there we go. For all time, and for all people maybe <laughs> the first one I talked to you about was the second locked to the hyperfine transition of the cesium 133 happen because it's a microwave emission it puts an absolutely fundamental limit on how accurately time can be measured it's still a measurement that is defined where the realisation is implicit in the way it's defined so Across the world at the moment, there are a large number of people trying to create clocks that instead of relying on a transition, a microwave transition, that particular microwave transition in cesium, can be locked to optical transitions. This is the uh, MPL, uh, one of the MPL clocks, uh, and this is the heart of it. And in here, we can hold a single atom single atom of strontium 90 we can call it to absolute zero with lasers and then we can probe it and lock a clock to its frequency of that emission. That will enable measurements with an accuracy of one second in the lifetime of the universe <laughs> and probably in 2026 the SI will be tweaked again. But that shouldn't take away from the excitement <laughs> of am So I'll finish. <laughs>